the reason I wanted to read Richard Wright today is because I got a fascinating letter about uh, about communism. Uh, I I find it so interesting. I I took some other letters and I used them for this Thursday morning spot on the morning show. Uh, I think it is it is good to have more feedback, folks. I I hope I get more letters from you in the future so that I can uh, sort out some of these confusions. I'm afraid that we've reached the point in our history when it's time to go back to square one and define our terms. I'm taking too much for granted. I see that. Uh, Anyway, just for fun, for an opener, before I get to Richard Wright, I want to read you a little bit of Lucy Parsons, because this woman was born in 1853, died 1942, born into slavery in Texas. And what she writes could be taken out verbatim and put on the front page of your local newspaper today, and it would be exactly, exactly, on the mark, on point. Here she writes, Lucy Parsons, born 1853, an ex-slave from her essay on anarchy. She writes, This is the evolutionary stage of anarchism. (laughs) She's writing in 1887, folks. Okay. The will be reached when the great middle classes are practically extinct. The great monopolies and corporations and syndicates met with on every hand are now rapidly extinguishing the middle classes, which we regard as the one great bulwark between the monopoly or wealthy class and the great producing or working class. There will come a time when there will be, in this world, only two classes— the possessing class and the non-possessing. But the producing class, that is, she writes, the possessors and the non-possessing class. Uh, She says that the middle classes have been forced into the wage class owing to the enormous capital now needed to remain in the field of production. Now, there you have it, folks. Uh, (laughs) A hundred years too soon, yes. Ah, the woman anarchist dropped her eyes for a moment in deep thought before she began. This is a description of Lucy Parsons. Dear Lucy, uh, she's got it, an hourglass culture, no middle class, just just the rich and the poor. Um, Fascinating, yes, Warren Buffett giving all his billions to... To Bill Gates. Isn't that interesting? Think about that for a minute. Uh, never mind. She goes on to say uh, that the change will probably not come peaceably. She says, I think not for all history shows that every attempt to wrest from the wealthy and powerful that which they have has been made by force. The vanguard of this struggling army will be found in America because Americans will never submit to being forced to the conditions of the European masses. Okay, the bell just rang. Now, yes, now we know that that was written a hundred years ago. Uh, She says that all the signs of the times show that the fight will begin here. And she goes on to witness the number of strikes and so forth. Uh, 
She holds out great hope for the spirit and the initiative of Americans. Ha, ha, ha. Sorry, Lucy, doesn't look like it. In any case, I don't want to take too much time with Lucy. I'm reading to you from this wonderful anthology on black writing from Chicago. And these uh, writers have in common just the fact that they come to us out of Chicago. And uh, uh, let's see, I was thinking that the best way to introduce Richard Wright to you is to tell you that recently I made a casual reference. I believe it was in a biography. I swear I can't remember. It was a biographical note on someone I was reading here on the station, and uh, uh, this uh, person had uh, membership in the Communist Party as part of the biography. And I got a couple of letters, uh, one in particular, uh, that was quite quite adamant, saying that... uh, uh, well, <laughs> I, I will not use the name because I have not asked permission. Uh, oh, yes, it was regarding Pete Seeger. Pete Seeger's time as a communist. Uh, Pete Seeger, yes, became a communist because of his hopes for a more equitable world. And, of course, uh, that's Richard Wright, too, you know. Uh, there was a little book when I was growing up called The God That Failed, and everyone from Richard Wright to Picasso, all of these these artists who thought that uh, communism was the answer. Uh, recently, the movie about uh, uh, Frida and uh, uh, Diego Rivera comes to mind. Anyway, the letter says, I always find it amazing that so many people use something like that as an excuse for adherence to the most murderous ideology in human history. One of my fantasies is to live long enough to hear a rational explanation for the supposed connection between aspirations for a more equitable world and the most blood-stained ideology that has ever exist, existed. I guess I should hope to live a really long time. True indeed, true indeed. For those of us, you know, who have personal experience, I think of my father's uh, traumatic response to... Um, Japanese culture when he came home from the World War, World War II, um, he was unable to deal with Japanese culture for the rest of his life. Uh, I don't blame him for that. It's not uh, not the sort of thing we can speak to. Um, but let's face it, there were a lot of naive Americans, uh, some of them in my own family. And uh, we still have Stalinists today, my goodness. Uh, as we all know, many Americans in the 1930s uh, jumped into the Communist Party with the usual hopes. And uh, uh, it's strange to think that anyone could have been that naive. We all know that uh, tyranny has a million names. In any case, let me read you just a, a little bit of Richard Wright's piece here. Uh, And then when we have the next marathon, I'm going to uh, read you some more of this book and see if you're interested in uh, subscribing to KPFA and getting a copy. Uh, Richard Wright was my first black writer, so to speak, my first African-American thinker. And, of course, the remarkable thing about him is that he's such an Anglophile. God bless him. He went to uh, Africa, went to Ghana wrote a book called Black Power, the first time I've seen the title. It was written in the 1950s. 
And he wrote some very, very, uh, let's call them Eurocentric things about African culture. But uh, looking back now, they seem quite sweet. He was born 1908, a little younger than my parents. Right. Died 1960. Oh, dear, lived to be only 52. Born in Mississippi. Moved to Chicago in the 1920s, and much of his work is set against the city's backdrop. Uh, I think most KPFA listeners are familiar with his basic uh, books, uh, Native Son, of course, the great one, the one that he wrote when he said that Eleanor Roosevelt had written him a letter saying how sad, how sad she was to read uh, the the, uh, stories he wrote about. The children of Uncle Tom's cabin, yes, uh, the sad stories of, uh, tragedy in the South. And so he wrote a book about the, the fact that suffering can, uh, turn you into a monster, can make you, uh, uh, become a murderer and become pretty grim. Native Son is a book that, uh, well, let's call it social realism and let it go at that. Uh, it was written in 1940 and it hit like a bomb. It was fantastic, yes. Uncle Tom's Children was written two years before that uh, and he said he didn't want to make uh, Eleanor Roosevelt weep. He wanted to wake people up. Uh, Black Boy is probably my favorite because I could use that in the public schools. It was his... Uh, Biography. I used to use it along with Charlie Dickens' book, uh, David Copperfield, you know, uh, Suffering in uh, Boyhood. Uh, let's see, when he wrote 12 Million Black Voices, the FBI started to monitor Richard Wright, and that went on for the rest of his life. There are many stories that they pretty much hounded him uh, to his death. Um, He went off to Paris and so on and so on. And James Baldwin has a great deal to say about um, Richard Wright. Uh, Let's see. Native Son was a national sensation. It sold over 200,000 copies in less than three weeks. Now, uh, American Hunger is basically his his massive adult autobiography. It was published in 19, let's see, American Hunger wasn't published until 1977, my gosh. It's true that his work really was not quite taken taken to heart until the next generation. Always it seems to take us a generation for the blood to dry. We can't quite take it. Anyway, the piece that I want to read to you represents Richard Wright's public break with the Communist Party. <laughs> the piece appeared in New Masses, and, of course, the the uh, party denounced him. So interesting, uh, the confusion uh, artists have. They embrace the ideal, and then they are faced with the facts, and... Let's say, as Sartre says, they can't can't stand to get their hands dirty. Well, I think, no, I, I'm on the side of the artist. I think that uh, there is something special about our American independence. Uh, maybe we are self-indulgent. 
I don't know. In any case, here's what Richard Wright says. Uh, this is the section uh, in American Hunger called I Tried to Be a Communist. He writes, One Thursday night I received an invitation from a group of white boys I had known when I was working in the post office. It's an invitation to meet in one of Chicago's South Side hotels and argue the state of the world. Ten of us gathered, ate salami sandwiches, drank beer, and talked. I was amazed to discover that many of them had joined the Communist Party. I challenged them by reciting the antics of the Negro communists I had seen in the parks. I was told that those antics were tactics and were all right. I was dubious. Then, one Thursday night, Saul, a Jewish chap, (laughs) startled us by announcing that he had had a short story accepted by a little magazine called The Anvil, edited by Jack Conroy, and that he had joined a revolutionary artist organization, the John Reed Club. Footnote here, uh, you will remember that John Reed was the subject of a movie by Warren Beatty called Reds. A major Hollywood film about uh, the only American to be buried in the Kremlin Wall after the uh, Russian Revolution, 1917. Anyway, Saul repeatedly begged me to attend the meetings of the club. He said, you'd like them. I said, I don't want to be organized. He said, they can help you to write. I said, nobody can tell me how or what to write. I felt that communists could not possibly have a sincere interest in Negroes. I was cynical, and I would rather have heard a white man say that he hated Negroes, which I could have readily believed. One Saturday night, bored with reading, I decided to appear at the John Reed Club in the capacity of an amused spectator. I rode to the loop and found the number mounted the stairs to a door that was lettered, The Chicago John Reed Club. I opened it and stepped into the strangest room I have ever seen. Paper and cigarette butts lay on the floor. A few benches ran along the walls, above which were vivid colors depicting colossal figures of workers carrying streaming banners. The mouths of the workers gaped in wild cries. Their legs were sprawled over cities. Hello, I turned and saw a white man smiling at me. You're welcome here, the white man said. Do you paint? No, I said. I try to write. Oh, then sit in on the editorial meeting of our magazine, Left Front, he suggested. I know nothing of editing, I said. You can learn, he said. I stared at him, doubting. My name's Grimm, he said. I told him my name and we shook hands. He went to a closet and returned with an armful of magazines. Here are some back issues of The Masses, he said. Have you ever read it? No, I said. Some of the best writers in America publish in it, he explained. He gave me uh, copies of a magazine called International Literature. There's stuff here from André Gide, uh, Gorky. I assured him that I would read them. He took me to an office, introduced me to a Jewish boy who was to become one of the nation's leading painters, then to a chap who was to become one of the eminent composers of his day, to a writer who was to create some of the best novels of his generation, 
to a young Jewish boy who was destined to film the Nazi occupation of Czechoslovakia. I was meeting men and women whom I should know for decades to come, who were to form the first sustained relationships in my life. I sat in a corner and listened while they discussed their magazine left front. Were they treating me courteously because I was a Negro? I must let cold reason guide me with these people, I told myself. After the meeting, I met an Irish girl who worked for an advertising agency. I met a girl who did social work, a school teacher, the wife of a prominent university professor. I had once worked as a servant for people like these, and I was skeptical. I tried to fathom their motives, but I could detect no condescension in them. My footnote here is that uh, this reminds me of the discussion or the uh, illustrations of class divide in the novel Native Son when uh, Bigger Thomas becomes uh, a chauffeur in a liberal white family and he's uh, quite confused by their efforts at uh, democratic uh, social relations. Anyway, this section tells about Wright going home with the magazines that Grimm has given him. and He reads them and is amazed that there did exist in the world an organized search for the truth of the lives of the oppressed. <laughs> While he's reading them, his mother picks up a copy of the masses. She's horrified by the cover. It depicts a man in a lurid May Day cartoon. What do communists think people are, she asks. This gives Wright his first sense of a mission he can fulfill if he is to join these people. He goes on to write in the uh, autobiography, Here then was something that I could do, reveal, say. The communists, I felt, had oversimplified the experience of those whom they sought to lead. In their efforts to recruit masses, they had missed the meaning of the lives of the masses. They had conceived of people in too abstract a manner. I would try to put some of that meaning back. I would tell communists how the common people felt, and I would tell common people of the self-sacrifice of the communists who strove for unity among them. <laughs> The editor of Left Front accepted two of my crude poems for publication, sent two of them to Jack Conroy's magazine, Anvil, sent another to the New Masses, successor to the Masses. Doubt still lingered in my mind. I said to him, don't send them if you think they aren't good enough. They're good enough, he said. Are you doing this to get me to join up, I asked. No, he said, your poems are crude, but good for us, you see. We're all new in this. We write articles about Negroes, but we never see any Negroes. We need your stuff. I sat through several meetings of the club. I was impressed by the scope and seriousness of its activities. The members were fervent, democratic, restless, eager, self-sacrificing, I was convinced, and my response was to set myself the task 
of making Negroes know what communists were. I got the notion of writing a series of biographical sketches of Negro communists. I told no one of my intentions, and I did not know how fantastically naive my ambition was. <laughs> Any of this beginning to sound familiar, folks? Uh, we all of us think. I'm, I'm uh, speaking in parenthesis here. Every time I read about a writer who starts out thinking that his work can, uh, what is that, untie the knots and help people connect in new ways, I always get a pang in my heart. I, I have to believe, though, that somewhere somebody gets it, and once in a while something happens that tells me they do. Ah, anyway, Richard Wright joins the John Reed Club, but he soon realizes that a bitter factional fight is in progress between two groups of members of the club. Now, the basic fight is between painters and writers. Ah, yes, different, different brains, I always say, yes. The writers, wanting to protect the publication of the Left Front magazine, take over the club. Wright is elected the club's new exec secretary. Later, he learns that the writers of the club had decided to oust the painters, who were Communist Party members, Without my knowledge and consent, they confronted the members of the party with a Negro, knowing that it would be difficult for communists to refuse to vote for a man representing the largest single racial minority in the nation, inasmuch as Negro equality was one of the main tenets of communism. But the Communist Party sends word through its fraction that the left front is to be dissolved anyway, and Wright is told he must join the party if he wants to remain the executive secretary. Because he is somewhat successful in arguing for a more liberal attitude, he signs the membership card. But the club's trials are hardly over. Wright tells of an escaped mental patient who rises to a leadership position only to cause turmoil by bringing false charges against another member. What kind of a club did we run, asks Wright, that a lunatic could step into it and help run it? Were we all so mad that we could not detect a madman when we saw one? I have a footnote here that says, Remind anyone of KPFA Radio? Anyway, he goes on to write, This sense of madness at many levels, yes, uh, grows. Nevertheless, uh, here we go, yes. Uh... Wright accepts the assignment. He's decided to do full duty in the work of the club. And he is instructed to give a unit meeting. Here we go, yes. He writes to say, about 20 Negroes were gathered. Time came for me to make my report. I took out my notes and told them how I had come to join the party, what few stray items I had published, what my duties were in the John Reed Club, I finished and waited for comment. There was silence. I looked about. Most of the comrades sat with bowed heads. Then I was surprised to catch a twitching smile on the lips of a Negro woman. Minutes passed. The Negro woman lifted her head and looked at the organizer. The organizer smothered a smile. Then the woman broke into unrestrained laughter. 
bending forward, burying her face in her hands. I stared. Had I said something funny? What's the matter? I said. The giggling became general. The unit organizer, who had been dallying with his pencil, looked up. It's all right, comrade. He said. We are glad to have a writer in the party. And then there was more smothered laughter. What kind of people were these? I had made a serious report, and now I heard giggles. I did the best I could. I said uneasily. I I realize that writing is not basic or important, but given time, I think I can make a contribution. We know you can, comrade. The black organizer said. His tone was more patronizing than that of a southern white man. I grew angry. I thought I knew these people, but evidently I did not. I wanted to take issue with their attitude, but caution urged me to talk it over with others first. During the following days, I learned through discreet questioning that I had seemed a fantastic element to the black communists. I was shocked to hear that I, who had been only to grammar school, had been classified as an intellectual. What was an intellectual? I had never heard the word used in the sense in which it was applied to me. I had thought that they might refuse me on the ground that I was not politically advanced. I had thought they might say I would have to be investigated, but they had simply laughed. I learned, to my dismay, that the black communists in my unit had commented upon my shine shoes, my clean shirt, and the tie I had worn. Above all, my manner of speech had seemed an alien thing to them. One of the Negro comrades had said, "He talks like a book." That was enough to condemn me forever as bourgeois. <laughs> oh, this this whole essay just uh, gives me a heartache. I think of. Uh, I think of his book *Black Power*, in which he tries desperately to understand his roots in Africa, in Ghana. But of course,、uh, Richard Wright is as much、uh, an Englishman as anything else. He's very mixed race.、Uh, his grandmother tells him that he will be called a colored man, but、um, he finds a culture. Uh, he finds it in books, and um, yes, uh, he is not. What is it?、Uh, he is not of the people. Let's face it.、Um, and he winds up、uh, as a very alienated and isolated intellectual.、Uh, what I like about Richard Wright is that, like Virginia Woolf, he actually finds the hands-on work. In the party, fairly cheerful, he says there was relief from the shadowy political bouts. I found my work in the Southside Boys Club. Each day, black boys between the ages of eight and twenty-five came to swim, draw, and read. They were a wild and homeless lot, culturally lost, spiritually disinherited. Candidates for the clinics, morgues, prisons, reformatories, and the electric chair of the state's death house. For hours, I listened to their talk 
of planes, women, guns, politics, and crime. Their figures of speech were as forceful and colorful as any ever used by English-speaking people. I kept pencil and paper in my pocket to jot down their word rhythms and reactions. These boys did not fear people to the extent that every man looked like a spy. The communists who doubted my motives did not know these boys. Their twisted dreams, their all-too-clear destinies. I doubted if I should ever be able to convey to them the tragedy that I saw here with these boys. Yes, anyway, the rest of the essay goes on to explain how the party tried to control writers and other intellectuals and how the John Reed Club is dissolved. And we all know, most of us know, this story, the conflicts. Richard Wright is dismissed as a smuggler of reaction. Time for me to get off the air now. I'm going to read you some more of this anthology called Black Writing from Chicago. And we're going to have this book as a premium during the next marathon. I've been reading to you from Richard Wright's autobiography, how he struggled with the Communist Party and how it failed, how it was the one of the gods that failed, uh, how he was unable to, um, what is that, uh, deal with the comrades. Um, this has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Tune in to Voices of Middle East and North Africa for genuine, authentic, indigenous perspectives from the Middle East and North Africa. Every week.